You'll know real when you get it. It will say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things that you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hello, hello, it's Brooke DeVard, and you're listening to the Naked Beauty Podcast. How is everyone doing? I am feeling good. I'm feeling actually really grateful as I record this to all of you for listening. Last week really showed me how supportive and amazing you guys really are. When I shared my panic over the sound from last episode, so many of you reached out to me and were like, girl, it's fine. But you also shared how much you're appreciating the show and enjoying listening during lockdown, which just warms my heart more than any of you will ever know. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. Today is a very special episode because we are joined by Dr. Shireen Idris, also known as Pillow Talk Derm. She is a board certified cosmetic dermatologist, and she's really a leader and disruptor in the beauty industry. She had this fear of public speaking, but she was also getting really frustrated about misinformation around skincare on the internet. So her nurse basically dared her to do an Instagram story and said, it's fine, it's going to disappear in 24 hours, but just share some advice. Since doing this Instagram story, Shireen has amassed a huge following. I actually just saw her. She was going live with Emrata. I'm sure you guys know her, the very famous model. She's got almost 200,000 followers on Instagram, and she has this amazing series, which she calls the Pillow Talk Derm series. So after seeing patients all day, she comes home. She's usually in her own bed, in her pajamas, and she just gives advice about skincare. She's really about giving healthcare access with authentic not sponsored tips to her audience. Honestly, cannot recommend following her enough. She gives such great skincare advice, but I also love that she's a big believer in not having to buy expensive products to have great skin. She really helps to give a range for every budget. So for Dr. Shireen, I talk to people a lot. With this podcast, I get to meet lots of different personalities and I hear lots of different voices and accents and vocal intonations. And I get really enamored with people's voices and speech patterns. So not only do I love what she has to say on this episode, and she's got a great voice, but I also, she does this thing when she's about to say something that she really believes in, which I just love. She'll go, listen. So I'll be like, so you're not really into facials. Like you don't really believe in them. And she'll pause for a second and go, listen. I just love that for some reason. I don't know why I love it so much, but it was one of my favorite things as I was listening back to her. 
definitely stay tuned for my takeaways at the end because she brings up some things about clean beauty that I want to share my thoughts on. It's interesting. She is not the first dermatologist I've had on the show. You guys know that Dr. Elena Jones was on the show. She's the dermatologist I see. She's wonderful. I've had um, Dr. Shanive Geniton on the show. But what I'm noticing is a lot of the doctors, the ones that really study the science of skin, aren't obsessed with this idea of clean beauty. I remember when I told my dermatologist, you know, I make all of these face masks with stuff in my house and I use all my, oh, she's like, that's great if that's working for you. Like if it's not harming your skin and you're seeing benefits, by all means, go for it and do it. But she was very much like, you don't have to demonize chemicals. You don't have to demonize some of these like store-bought products. So I try to have a balance with all things. I think that's a really healthy and important perspective. But I loved hearing what Dr. Shireen had to share on clean beauty, but also just her career journey, how she's thinking about her skincare routine during this time of quarantine and lockdown. We also talk about aging and how your skin changes as you get older. And she you know, gives fillers and Botox to patients. So I wanted to know from her, how do you help guide them to make the right decisions? How do you tell someone no? How do you cut someone off? Loved everything she had to say. I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode a lot. As always, if you love the show, please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. I read every single review. And honestly, the reviews that I was left last week were so nice. So thank you so much for taking the time to do those. New episode every single Monday. And also, there is a website, nakedbeautypodcast.com. I have all of my episodes on that website and you can actually search by topic. So if there's a guest that I've had on that you can't find the episode or there's a topic that you want more of, you can actually just type in the search bar and find all of the episodes there. I hope that resource helps. Let's get into the conversation. You'll know real when you get it. It will say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things that you love are checked by experts, not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. So I'm joined here now with Dr. Shireen. You're in quarantine right now, correct? I am in quarantine heaven. Yes. Where are you? We are in the middle of nowhere in Connecticut um, at the moment. And so I apologize if my Wi-Fi cuts in and out a tiny bit, but that's probably why. But we are in, in uh, Connecticut for the past three weeks. Amazing. I'm in Sag Harbor. I got out of New York City like a month ago once all of the news hit, just because it's like not where you want to be right now. It's it's hard. I mean, New York City is really, it's funny. Like we were in the city and I felt the weight of the world on my shoulders and I felt the stress like amplified times a thousand. And obviously being in an apartment with a working husband on the phone all day and two little kids below the age of two, it was extremely claustrophobic. So when we came out here to the suburbs, 
it was crazy how that stress level just kind of went away. And you can kind of see how people don't take it as seriously as it is when they're like surrounded in nature or they're not really living in the thick of it. But it's, it's crazy. That experience of going from New York City to the suburbs has been truly, truly intense, to be honest. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, I want to take you back to what life was like growing up for you in D.C. I know that your family has a really amazing story. Your family's from Lebanon, um, but your parents left and you were the only one of your siblings that was actually born in the States. But what was it like for you, like growing up in D.C. and how did your parents leaving Lebanon for the war kind of impact how you understood who you were growing up? I mean, I'm very impressed by your homework. <laughs> um, I really am. Um, well, like you said, I was the only one who was actually born in the States, but I was born here and we left after 10 days and uh, moved to Cyprus, where I probably spent the first year and a half of my life there, um, which I obviously do not remember. And then came right. back to the States um, after that, where we subsequently stayed. And DC is where I was born and raised. And I loved it. I mean, DC for me is like, it's kind of funny when I talk to patients and be like, do you want to go back? It's like a little utopia for me because it's, it's a city and a garden. And as a kid, you had access to like so many resources. So there, I, I always took for granted, for example, the free museums, not realizing that museums were f- like not free for a long time. It was such a multicultural city. So I have like the fondest memories of growing up in D.C., Obviously, we would still go back to Lebanon once the war subsided and we would go back once a year. And so having that, you know, experience to kind of, you know, live through both worlds was definitely um, life shaping and life altering for me. Because as a kid, you're so used to the comforts of growing up in the U.S. And then you go to a third world country where electricity is cut off and, you know, you only have two hours of electricity a day. It really does shape you. And makes of you extremely course. scrappy <laughs> and uh, resourceful. Yeah. And were there any things from Lebanese culture that your parents kind of introduced to you from like a beauty perspective? Anything about their self-care routines or even just the products or ingredients they were using that you didn't see in the States or you didn't like notice your you know friends' parents did? I mean, I think rose water is like a staple of any uh, kind of Lebanese skincare routine. Rose water and um, and Lebanese food, which I and love. Lebanese I love food. rose water desserts. Yeah, so good. Ugh, so good. It's funny. My mom would put it on her face. I'm like, why are you putting that on your face when we eat it? Um, <laughs> but it was so funny. But yeah, they definitely. I think rose water was a staple that you know I would never see like in CVS or the supermarket, and it was always something that they got from like a local ethnic supermarket that she ended up using on her skin. I think that's probably the the most tied to Lebanon skincare staple that I could think of in her beauty and routine. Were you, and were you raised, like, did you speak Lebanese? Did they raise you bilingual? Yeah, that we were, so we were actually raised trilingual. So my parents came to the U.S. with hopes of always moving back, thinking that once the war is over, we'll go back. And that was sort of their dream. And so that being their dream, they, they, they raised us with that mentality where they wanted us to be extremely multicultural, exposed to various languages, cultures, backgrounds, and everything, so that if we ever did move back, we would be able to integrate relatively easy uh, or easily. That being said, we went to a French school because it's the second language in Lebanon, which was also an international school. And that uh, was this is this is Lycée Rochambeau. Yes, exactly. The Lycée Sounds Rochambeau. Sounds so fancy. Sounds so it fancy. was 
It's the opposite of fancy. Maybe actually now it's a little fancier, but growing up, it it truly was not fancy at all uh, because it was actually a public school for French citizens. Although it was like a semi-private school for people who are not French or not part of the World Bank. Anybody who was French or part of the World Bank or a diplomat's kid, it was kind of like a public school. So it really wasn't fancy, although it has a very fancy sounding name. And the beauty of that particular school and that experience was that we had these kids come in every year from different countries because they were constantly rotating, whether they were like diplomats kids or working for the World Bank or IMF or if they were just coming from France for a couple of years working at the embassy. And so from a very young age, I was very aware of various cultures. Like I remember feeling very, very um, conscientious of what I was eating versus what my friend was eating and never wanting my friend to feel weird if they're eating something that right. doesn't look normal, you know, quote unquote. I think that really did form me as a person. And uh, we would also have Arabic lessons once a week since I could remember throughout my whole childhood, just to make sure that that language was constantly heard. And even though I don't speak it perfectly, um, you know, I, I definitely can get by. Nice. So would it be fair to say that the school you went to was pretty diverse, like people from different cultures, different backgrounds? I'm going to sound so naive with what I'm about to say. It was so diverse, but I never saw it as such. I just mm. thought it was normal. And I remember right. when I first started in undergrad at GW, which is an extremely diverse um, student, has an extremely diverse student body. I was surprised that people were aggregating based on their like ethnicities or culture, because I always had friends from all different backgrounds. And I honestly never really noticed it because it was just such a, such the norm that when I went into the undergrad setting in an American system, it struck me how people were so segregated whether they were Turkish or African-American or uh, Haitian, even they were like in their own little subset, Arabs versus South Americans. Everybody was kind of clicky. Whereas growing up, I never experienced that. So that was eye opening in another way for me because I was so used to everything being so like fluently diverse and intermixed um, that I was shocked and taken aback my first year of undergrad for sure. Yeah, I can imagine, especially coming from that background. So what made you want to be a dermatologist? Like what, what about dermatology did you find fascinating? What made you think, okay, this is the career, this is a profession for me? So I applied to the BAMD program at GW, which is a straight shot from high school, seven years. It combines, you don't have to basically take the MCATs and reapply to medical school. You get in from high school. And when I applied, I applied with the intention of going into plastic surgery because I've always been somebody who's been very creative. I love sculpting. I would paint. I would basically create these puzzles out of cardboard pieces growing up. Maybe it's because I was the third child and like, you know, neglected by my sisters. I would keep myself entertained creatively with my hands all day, every day. So I applied thinking I'd want to do like something surgical. I was always inclined towards like aesthetics and like making people or things look enhanced or prettier or better about themselves. I just got drawn into that. So like, I think I was like 18 at the time or it was my first or second year of undergrad. And so I asked um, this doctor if I could follow her and shadow her and she graciously um, accepted. And so every week for like a year and a half, I would go into her office and shadow her for a couple of hours and really fell in love with the field. And it wasn't really until my first year of medical school that I decided, you know, I'm just going to decide, I'm just going to go all in and apply for dermatology, despite how competitive it is, because, you know, why not give it a shot and give it a chance? Because I really loved it. 
And um, I ended up taking a year off. I did research for a year. I met some amazing people. And then I came back, finished med school and was so fortunate to be accepted into the field and uh, basically became a dermatologist. That's a, like, yeah, a long so story you, short. You've, d- you've done a lot of school. You did G- so you did GWU, Tufts, Northwestern, Harvard. It was a lot of everything. Um, <laughs> I uh, It was basically GW for seven years. My year of research was at Connected Health, which was affiliated with Harvard and Massachusetts General Hospital. And then I also did various rotations at Northwestern, at Harvard itself. I was everywhere I could like basically be in order to learn and to expose myself to the field as much as possible. Wow. And do you ever feel like... This is just me personally. I feel like I see a lot of people giving out skincare advice online and on social media, but they don't necessarily have like the degrees that you have or the background that you have or the depth of experience that you have as like just like a medically trained doctor with like such a deep background in this. Does it ever bother you to see people that position themselves as skincare experts just doling out advice? I admire their passion and their willingness to learn about a field, you know, I get annoyed and bothered when the information that they're putting out there is not based in any factual science or merit, or they position that information as authoritative and facts. And I think that really bothers me. And honestly, that's sort of why I started Pillow Talk Germ was because it was almost two years ago, I kept getting patients coming in saying like, crazy stuff that they're repeating from bloggers or influencers or that didn't make any sense. And I'd be on repeat all day and getting frustrated. I also have a very deep fear of public speaking though. So my nurse at the time was like, listen, why don't you go on Instagram, do a story. You have like two followers. It will disappear after 24 hours. No one will ever have to see it, but maybe, you know, you can debunk a few myths and you'll feel better. And yeah, you know, maybe you'll get over your fear. And so it was almost like a bet in a sense. And uh, I took her up on it and it was such a bad story. I actually saved it to my highlights. And what ended up happening was exactly that was like one kind of like debunking of a myth ended up coming in like 10 questions came in and then 20 questions came in the next time and then 30 questions came in and it kind of snowballed. I thought I was going to say it once and like never have to repeat myself. Now I'm on repeat 24 seven, which is kind of ironic, but I don't mind it because as long as people are getting the right information out there, I I really don't mind. And it became kind of a joke with my family in the sense, because whenever they FaceTimed me, I'd always be in bed after work laying down. And I was doing these stories from bed without really thinking about it. And so I don't know, one of my friends was like, what is this like pillow talk now you're doing on Instagram? And then it kind of became like pillow talk Durham and it took on a whole life of its own. And I never in a million years anticipated it would be what it is now. Wow. Well, as someone who loves all of the advice you give, it's honestly so great. And I would have never, but I would have never guessed that you had a fear of public speaking ever. I still do. I think it's easy on Instagram because, or even like doing this podcast, because I'm just talking to a screen. It feels fake. You know, I don't realize how many people are maybe tuning. Like, I don't know. It's like, there's like kind of like a disconnect because there's a screen. But I've always felt, and I don't, maybe it's the the international upbringing. I never felt as polished as like my peers when I hear them speak. Um, and they're so eloquent and their English is so perfect. And I make a bajillion mistakes when I speak. But I've always felt like I shouldn't be speaking out loud so much like in a public manner. So I, I'm very grateful to my nurse. And I'm very grateful that 
she's helped me kind of overcome this fear. Um, and I'm grateful to people on Instagram and the community that we've created together who've given me a voice and kind of given me that platform to not to sound like cliche, but to kind of come on and, you know, get over my fears personally and kind of help them in the process. Yeah, no, I think you do an amazing job. I One of the things that you talk about a lot are kind of like, well, aging comes up a lot, right? I feel like so many women want to know about aging and aging skin. And you say there are five main things that you look at. Lines, mm -hmm. volume loss, color of your skin, elasticity, and your bone structure. Mm -hmm. And one of like your favorite quotes ever, I can't remember where you gave this quote, but you said, I can't do jack shit for your bone structure, <laughs> which I feel like is just so real. Um, how do you basically, when people come to you with like concerns about aging, like where do you really begin with patients? I'll tell you this. I don't think I have a recipe and it's so patient dependent when it's somebody physically coming into the office because I really base it on my feel and my gut of that person. Cause a lot of times people will come in complaining about one thing and it will eventually like become Pandora's box of a million other things that's bothering them. I approach it first and foremost by listening to what that person really wants, which is, you know, varies tremendously from one person to the next. And then I hear them out as, like, as to what's bothering them. And then I let them know if they're willing to hear it. I always ask them, do you want to know my opinions? Because obviously it's subjective. I can help them attain their goals. And then we work together. I never want to impose my complete aesthetic on somebody else. But at the same time, I'm not going to give in to someone else's aesthetic if it's not something I believe in. And I, I, hold, I, I hold very true to that. So it's very, very very, very dependent on each person that comes into the office, trying to assess, you know, their mental state, trying to assess, you know, what it is that they're looking for. Is it realistic? Is it not realistic? It, are they going to regret what they're asking for in 10 years when it's no longer a trend? And really trying to... What are, what are some of the trends that you're seeing? I feel like I know what they are, but I would, I mean, you're the, you really see people and see what the trends are. Like, what are I, you seeing happen? For the longest time, it was like, blow up my lips. And no, you know, it didn't match somebody who has like a small little head with massive, I'm not going to do that. And then I think most recently it's become more like, I want that like, you know, SpongeBob square jawline, you know, like oh, super like defined. Strong, yeah. Like a strong jawline. Interesting. A strong jawline, which, you know, doesn't match a lot of people's faces. I'm just wondering, are you seeing people come in with pictures? Like I've, I've talked to other plastic surgeons on this show and they've said like, oh, I see like a lot of Bella Hadid or like a lot of Kylie Jenner. Like are there, do you see trends in terms of who people bring in images of? Of course. I mean, that's very cyclical. You know, for a long time it was Kylie Jenner's lips and then it was Bella Hadid's and then it was more her jawline or her, eye, her eyebrows and her eye lift, you know, her, that, that lifted cat eye look. But I think for the most part, a lot of patients who come to me kind of already know where I stand. Hmm. Uh, you know, they know you're not about it. <laughs> I'm not about it. I'm not trying to transform you into looking like someone else. So I, I think I've kind of weeded those people out by, by default of being so loud on social media that they don't end up really coming to me for certain looks because they know I, I won't necessarily deliver that just because they yeah. want it. That's good. And even, but even just, I think, women's preoccupation with aging, some of just the reality of getting older is that your skin does change. How do you kind of prepare people for the reality of, so I'm 30 now, I'm going to be 31 this summer, but what are some mm -hmm. of the things that change about your skin as you age? 
I mean, so many things, you know, it's like, it's kind of like those five different pillars that you, you know, you, you said so eloquently. I think the first thing that really starts to creep up is probably pigmentation issues where people start to get, you know, uneven skin tone without realizing that that's creeping up. You know, it's a subtle change, but it can have a dramatic impact on how you look overall before even like the lines become etched in on your skin and you become, you know, quote unquote wrinkly or whatever. So I'd say, you know, pigmentary change are probably like the first things you might notice, then yeah, fine for, lines. I feel huh? like for black women also hyperpigmentation is something that a lot of women of color just deal with. What do you recommend for hyperpigmentation? It's one of the things that I get asked all the time and I share kind of some of the things that I do, but would love to know from your perspective, like for hyperpigmentation, what you recommend. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still crazy to me that in 2020 for women or men of color, they don't think that they need to be wearing sunscreen as much as they should. And I find that that alone can make, a, it can just protect you from making the hyperpigmentation worse. So I think, you know, prevention is key here, especially let's say if you have active acne that might leave some residual dark spots, wearing a sunscreen over that will help protect your skin from getting darker over time. So I think that's first and foremost. Otherwise, I mean, the classic staples that apply for lighter skin also applies for darker skin when you're talking about brightening, whether it's using vitamin C as like an antioxidant or looking for ingredients that have brightening, you know, properties like kojic acid, papaya extract, even niacin. And finally, prescription strength hydroquinone, which you have to be a little bit careful, obviously, because you don't want to change the base of your skin. But I'm not talking about going at a super high strength that's going to, you know, completely, you know, bleach your skin. I'm talking about like 4%, which is prescription, but definitely not the highest you can go. So yeah, there's a combination I've, of things. I've been like when with my dermatologist, I've gotten hydroquinone and I think I got, I want to say I even got maybe 5% strength mm -hmm. hydroquinone. And I remember being like scared to use it for like the first few weeks. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh, like, I feel like this is like a skin bleaching cream, which essentially it is. But if you mm -hmm. only put it on the sections of your face where you have like hyperpigmentation or marks, it doesn't lighten the rest of your skin. But I feel like so many people are like, you know, there's obviously a really, and it deserves a negative stigma against skin bleaching, but I feel like people yeah. are even afraid to do hydroquinone, but it is really effective, isn't it? It's super effective. I mean, I know that it's funny with my second baby, all of these like sunspots that I had kind of became more prominent. Um, not melasma-ish because it wasn't so much like plaques, but just kind of more obvious on my skin. And the second I was done breastfeeding, I popped that hydroquinone open and just started using it. And it was, it's miraculous how much it's improved, you know, just over the course of like a couple of weeks even. Um, so I know it has a bad rep, but I'm not saying to incorporate it every day forever in your routine, but using it every once in a while as a boost just to kind of help you get to where you want to be is not a bad idea. Absolutely. And are there any vitamin C like products that you really love? I think vitamin C, you know, I think when it's been proven that when combined with vitamin E or ferulic acid, it's definitely more potent. So obviously the CE Ferulic by SkinCeuticals is great. The Drunk Elephant is, you know, definitely up to par. Cheaper options are like the L'Oreal, but it's only 10%, I believe. They're a vitamin C serum, which I kind of use as a primer to start my day. So there's, there's a couple out there that are really good. Yeah, I, I feel like vitamin C makes a really big difference. Another question I have for you. So obviously your personal brand is so connected to skincare. Is it stressful where like you feel like you have to almost be the face of your brand and like you get a blemish or something and then it's like you're 
I'm, and I'm asking this because so my mm-hmm. dad, I'm, I'm quarantined with my whole family. My dad okay. has been watching MSNBC all day. Um, uh-huh. And the CEO of Equinox was speaking today. And I was like, oh, I kind of expected the CEO of Equinox to be like a little like buffer, like a little bit more fit. And my dad's like, why? <laughs> he's just, you know, he's like in the office. And I'm like, I don't know. He's the CEO of Equinox. But I would imagine for you, especially with like your brand and your following, it must be, you know, and you have gorgeous, amazing skin. I mean, from the pictures that I've seen of you and from the videos that I've seen, you have like gorgeous skin. But is it stressful to kind of like carry that as a, a mantle? Like you feel like your skin is kind of, advertising your brand as well? I would lie to you if I said no. I think there is a certain amount of stress, yes, to make sure that like you guys are keeping me in check, basically to make sure that I stick to my skincare routine and I don't skip out on wearing the sunscreen in the morning. But that being said, I'm very comfortable with pointing out when I do get blemishes because everybody gets blemishes. You know, if I have like one margarita on a Friday night, you know, pre-COVID going out to a Mexican restaurant, I probably would wake up with a blemish the next day. And so, you know, given, you know, that I'm so honest about like, just kind of trying to explain what products do, I, I, it's my job as well to be honest that, Hey, this is what I also struggle with. And I'm not someone who's hiding the pigmentation that happened from pregnancy at all. You know, it's out of my control and it happens. A blemish is somewhat within my control, but also just happens randomly. And I'll probably point it out, you know, more so than anything, but there is a certain level of stress, obviously, because you have to, you hope that you can maintain it for, you know, for a healthy amount of time in a certain healthy way. Yeah, that's fair. I also loved what you said about like if you're looking at getting fillers or Botox, like to look at what the doctors look like that are treating you because that kind of speaks to like their aesthetic. And if like they've gone too far, they'll probably go too far on you. I I truly believe that, you know, there are obviously like a lot of physicians, let's say, who look a certain way, but do a different kind of work, you know, but if I think as a rule of thumb, if it if the person that you're going to looks really exaggerated, then if you twist that person's arm, they'll probably make you look exaggerated in some way, shape or form, <laughs> you right. know? No. Um, I think and that's very true. It's true. Like, you know, if that's, if they're willing to go there on themselves, they'll probably be okay to go there on you. And I think looking at the staff around that physician, you know, who worked directly with that physician is a telltale sign of the work that that person does. Absolutely. So how do you draw the line with patients? I'm just so curious. So like I come to you and I'm like, I want to get all of these fillers and you really don't think I need as much as I want. Like, how do you have that conversation? I sometimes I'm as blunt as saying, listen, I'm losing money right now. I could make five times the amount that I'm going to make, but I'm telling you not to do it. And I, when I say that, I think the person kind of gets taken aback a little bit, you know, <laughs> and then they appreciate it. I would say nine out of 10 times, one out of 10 times. It's like, no, no, but I want, but I want, but I want, but I want. And if I don't feel comfortable, I'll tell them, listen, I cannot do what you're asking me. I just don't feel comfortable going there, you know, not like this. You know, if, if God forbid there's a complication, I'm going to be kicking myself because I'm going against my gut and what I think you should be getting. So I just tell them no. And I've grown very comfortable with saying no. And the patients who who appreciate it and respect that are the ones that want to stay there long-term, which is what ultimately, which is what I want. Like I want to have patients that I grow with mm-hmm. and the ones who just want what they want because it's the flavor of the month and they want it now who don't appreciate that, you know, like I wish them the best of luck with finding, you know, another provider. And, and I truly, you know, sincerely, um, sincerely hope that they find somebody that they can work with, you know, that they can grow with. 
but it probably won't be me. You mentioned earlier going out and getting margaritas and that maybe like resulting in a blemish. How does diet play a role in the conversations that you have with patients? Is it something that you try to mention to patients that have acne? Because I have found personally that diet does play a really big role in acne. And some people spend so much time on like topical treatments, but don't really take the time to change their diet. But I'm wondering as a dermatologist, how you have that conversation. It's funny, especially with acne patients. It's funny that you brought up acne. I bring it up and I try to, I try to gauge that person's lifestyle from the half an hour that I have with them in the office, you know, asking them like, how, you know, how just basic questions about their lifestyle and how they eat and what do they do? Do they go out? Do they work out? Do they not work out? Et cetera, do they drink? And I'll make it a point to say, listen, if you're somebody who's obsessed with like, you know, simple um, carbs or like sugars, refined sugars or like pizzas, cakes, cookies, whatever, that's probably not going to help you. But eating like a fruit, a bowl of like fruits, like with antioxidants and stuff, is that going to make you necessarily look younger? On the margin, like, you know, TBD, it's so difficult to assess. But I'll tell people with active acne, like definitely try to stay away from those inflammatory foods, alcohol being a big one, sugar being a big one, you know, like certain carbs being big ones, because it definitely can, can you know, play a role in the uh, disease process itself and make things appear worse than what they are. I read that you, you tend to steer away from using hyaluronic acid because you've seen it cause inflammation amongst your patients. I feel like that's such a hot ingredient right now. I feel like everyone's talking about hyaluronic acid. Why exactly is that? And are there other kind of hydrating ingredients that we should be looking for instead? So hyaluronic acid is a touchy one because it's obviously so advertised as being a hydrating ingredient, but that marketing bothers me a bit because it's not really hydrating. When you think of hydrating, right, you're thinking of something that is delivering hydration into your skin cells, but hyaluronic acid itself is extremely hydrophilic and it's greedy and it wants the water itself. So it's going to be trying to gather the water and hold on to it without really delivering it into your cells. And so the marketing behind HA as being a hydrating ingredient bothers me because I don't think it's based on factual, correct information. I think it's a great plumper. I think hyaluronic acid is almost like a quick fix if you have an event and you want to look more dewy or you want to look more plump, but it's almost like, you know, licking your lips, you know, it feels great in the first five, (laughs) five seconds that you do it. And then it dries out even worse. And then you lick them again. And then you're stuck in this vicious cycle. And I'm guilty of that. Uh, I always lick my lips and they always get worse. And I have to stop that cycle. So I feel like HA is kind of that. So what about using it with like a really great moisturizer or with a facial oil? I think that's fine. It's not like I'm anti-HA completely. Don't get me wrong. But I think the problem is it's in so many products now and incorporated into so many steps of your skincare routine that it's overload. And so people are overdoing it, Mm -hmm. you know, and they don't even realize it, that it's in so many products and so many steps. So if you had like a pure HA that you knew you were using every once in a while, and definitely you have to seal it in, I believe, with a thicker moisturizer, right? that's yeah. fine. That's fine. People use HA on an airplane. I'm like, oh my God, your skin is going to be so parched by the time you land. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I read, I actually read a really great article about how HA is like a little bit overhyped. It caused such a stir on the Harper's Bazaar website that it was actually taken down because there was just like so much disagreement about it. But yeah, I think it's definitely a controversial ingredient. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of big companies that have a lot of HA products that, you know, spend a lot of money Money. marketing. Yep. So, yep, yeah, absolutely. Has your skincare routine changed at all since you've been in quarantine? I think it's been, it hasn't been better ever. What's the expression? It's never been better than this yeah. <laughs> because I have so much time to actually just like focus on my skincare. I'm not wearing hardly any makeup except for like maybe mascara and a little bit of under eye concealer every once in a while. But I feel like I've really had a chance to reapply my skincare throughout the day, whereas usually I'm running at a million miles per hour that I don't right. get that chance so much. Um, so that's how it's, if I'm in front of, which I've been a lot of right now, and I actually ran out of my vitamin C serum in front of a blue screen throughout the day, I'll probably reapply the vitamin C serum nice. at least once midday. You know, if let's say I start at 9am and then by like 1 2 o'clock, I'll probably reapply it a little bit. And then I'm sitting by windows a lot. So I actually am reapplying sunscreen moisturizer rather than sunscreen powder throughout the day, at least once, you know, in between midday, like with the vitamin C serum. And uh, I feel like my skin hasn't looked this good in a very long time. Yeah. I feel like we're also also well rested, right? Like when, like, I can't remember ever being this well rested in my life. (laughs) You're lucky. I'm not so well rested. I'm sleeping like at 1.30 in the morning. I I don't know. Like I'm, I feel like, it's nice because I'm at home and my priorities have kind of shifted in that sense, you know, which is a much more laid back kind of like, you know, day to day. But I think, you know, there's still kind of like this like background voice of stress in my head, like what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, I've, I, had, I, I've had really bad nightmares, like very vivid, crazy nightmares, not necessarily related to uh-huh. COVID-19, but just like really vivid nightmares. And apparently it's like a common thing that's happening to a lot of people right now. Oh, really? I, I just can't sleep, which is weird for me. Usually mm. I put my head on a pillow and I pass out, but I keep scrolling the internet, hoping like, you know, some miraculous like article is going to come out saying it's gone, <laughs> <laughs> you, know? <laughs> Poof, you know, time to get back. A rainbow appeared uh, and I can never find that article. So I get sucked right. into this like black hole of like reading random articles left and right until like one thirty, And then I'm like, I have to stop. And so I don't feel like I'm sleeping as well because I just was looking at a screen for the past two hours. So I don't know. I'm not super rested, but I feel much more like in touch, you know, with reality, with my family. I feel much more grounded than I've ever been. Yes, because I know you're busy. I know you're always rushing from like events to engage. I mean, it's like you, you have a packed calendar. It's yeah. I mean, that's, I, I'm not that fabulous to be like engagements. I'm rushing between patients to my house, patients to my house to doing a yes, pillow talk okay. from my bed. Yeah, you know, it's much more real than that. But yeah, like it's, it's definitely, you know, seeing like 20 patients a day on your feet from like nine to five 30, then running home to get enough energy to spend like a couple, you know, three, two to three hours with my kids you know, to give them that energy and that, you know, attention that they deserve. And then my husband, and then, doing all of the social has been, you know, very, very hectic. Yes. Well, you and I have something very specific in common in terms Uh of our husbands. So I was living in London and my husband was living in New York and we actually got engaged and married living separately, basically. Oh, really? Yeah. Once he proposed, I moved to New York, but, and I know that you, your husband was in 
London, London. and you were in New York. And he wait, where, 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 where were you living? I was living in Notting Hill, right by like the Notting Hill Gate Theater, if you know that. But yeah, of course. And he was here in the city. Yeah, he was here in New York, but I'm from New York City. So when he proposed, I was like, okay, like I can move back home. It wasn't like this crazy move, but how did you guys meet? We met during the London 2012 Olympics. Oh my God, that's crazy. How long did you guys date? We dated long distance for a year, but you know, from being in a long distance relationship, it's like, I feel like it's like highly charged and really romantic. So we would have these, like we would decide like, okay, we're going to meet in Venice for one weekend uh-huh. in Amsterdam for another. And then we'd, we'll meet in Paris for another. So we'd have these like really like romantic kind of like honeymoon, like weekends together. Um, and then we'd be apart and then we'd have to like wait to see each other again. So we were only, yeah, we were dating for about a year before he proposed, but that year felt like supercharged because <laughs> I yeah. think that's the only way it works. Like if you're in a long distance, like I would always, it's so funny. Everything I always said I wouldn't do ended up happening in my life. Like I was like, I'll never date someone long distance. And boom, I dated and got <laughs> married long distance, you know? Um, I feel like you have to have two people who are very transparent with one another, with what they want in life. You know, there are no games that you can play because you just don't have time for games if you're dating long distance. Right. And you have to be on the same page, whatever that page is, you know, with with some kind of momentum and, you know, goal in sight. Because yes. I feel like if you're just dating to drift long distance, it goes nowhere. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I'm curious if you and your husband have had this conversation, but one of the things that Umut, my husband and I talk about is if we had been dating in New York, do you think we would have gotten engaged so quickly? And we're both kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> there wouldn't be this sense of urgency. I think that's a very, you know, we've actually never spoken about it, that specific topic, which is so funny because I feel like we've spoken about everything. But look, I, I don't think we would have either. I think we would have just like continued just doing our thing, you know? Yeah, it's so funny how that happens. That is so funny. London was a fun place. I mean, I, I loved, you know, the excuse of having to go visit him there. It was just like such a, you know... It's like a dream yeah. world in a sense. I know. I know. And I have I have lots of listeners in London. I actually did like a little like London listener meetup last time I was there, which was so much uh-huh. fun. Where, where in London did he live? Marlebone. Oh, and I nice uh, loved it. I loved it. Like I would like walk him to work and then I was in residency at the time. So I would go from hotel lobby to hotel lobby and just study for hours. Uh, eating scones so literally nice. like from 10 a.m. They would look at me like, why are you eating scones at this hour? But I didn't care. <laughs> um, and it was just like, I, that's one thing New York doesn't have is that hotel lobby scene. It's that true. London like knocks it out of the park. Like yes, any, met, any hotel. My husband and I, we met and we met at the lobby of the Dorchester actually. Oh, I love that hotel. <laughs> love it. <Great> love lobby. <laughs> it. The best and the best high tea. I would literally just spend hours in various hotel lobbies just studying, you know, while he was at work because it was so pretty um, and the food was always so good. I love London. I know. New York's kind of like sad in comparison, but I, I it's mean, so sad. The I, it's the greatest, but like the coffee shops have like these like steel bar stools that are so uncomfortable. Like you want to get <laughs> off it, like, like intentionally designed as, su- as such. So you don't hang out there for many yeah. hours. Yeah. Like it sucks, you know? Yes, but New York, yes. New York is great. I love New York. Don't get me wrong. I just think like they could really step up their hotel lobby scene. Yeah, they could definitely up their game. <laughs> Another thing that you and I have in common is that we have the same perspective on facials, which makes me so excited to talk about because 
I feel like I talk to a lot of women that are like, oh, I, you know, I get my weekly facial and I'm like, oh my God, it's so much money. So I feel like if I'm going to pay money to like relax, like I'd rather get like a full body deep tissue massage versus have someone like, like rub oils into my face that I can do at home. But I've also read that you're like not that obsessed with facials either. Listen, I have a lot of respect for estheticians um, and I work Mm -hmm. with a lot of them, but and I'll tell it to, I'll, I'll have this discussion with them as well because I just don't know how to BS. I'm like, I think facials can really help somebody jumpstart their skincare routine. I think facials can be really nice if you have a red carpet event, if you have something special to go to. I think facials have a place in your like, you know, self care menu, but I don't think that you should be spending $500, whatever it is, $200. Every month, dependent on a facial to have to, to to make you have good skin, there is like real power in like education and knowing what works for you and how you can help yourself and your yep. skin, and not relying on like someone else to apply certain products in a certain order or massaging your face. Unless, of course, you love that and it's like your right. way of really relaxing. But personally, for me, it stresses me out. And I would rather get like a scalp massage or like a foot massage or like you said, a full body massage. Like that's where I'd rather spend my money. But again, it's very subjective. Um, Yeah. But I don't think you need to rely on it to have good skin. Totally. And I feel like sometimes it can be interesting to learn things about your skin. Like I recently got a facial in LA and I always known that I've had very dry skin, but like she really reaffirmed. She was like, your skin is extremely dehydrated. And I was like, I know I try, I do all of the things. So sometimes it's interesting to like hear from like a third party, like, okay, looking at your skin, I can see this is happening. I can see that's happening. Um, Yeah. It's fun. Like every once in a while, it's fun to go see like a tarot card reader, you know? (laughs) Right. 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 But to do it all the time, I think it's crazy. To do it all the time. It's crazy. Um, At least that's my opinion. And maybe my mind would change if I had like a, just an unlimited budget in life and like, oh you know. yeah. I mean, I think we would have different perspectives about a lot of different things. <laughs> right. But if, right. I, if I had unlimited budget and I just didn't care and I had so much time in the world, yeah, why not throw in a facial once you know once a month, you know, for pampering or even once every two weeks, you know, at that at that rate. But that's not realistic, at least you know, not for me. I also bet a lot of people in quarantine are like really assessing their skin and thinking about, okay, once this is all over, I'm going to make appointments. Have you had lots of people reaching out to your office to get appointments with you? Have you had like an influx of new patients? Because I do feel like this is like a self-assessment period as well. It's been crazy. The amount of messages I've gotten through Instagram, the amount of messages that I've gotten on my phone from actually existing patients even. I'm like, guys, just put away the magnifying mirror. This is not (laughs) the time to be sitting in front of, first of all, I don't believe in magnifying mirrors. I just don't. I'm like, if you can't see it at a distance, like, you know, in a healthy distance while speaking to somebody, it's not worth your time and effort right now. It's funny, but I've had a lot of messages, a lot of inquiries, um, but I've actually used this time to really kind of focus on the actual patients that I have to make sure that they're being attended to. And then hopefully, you know, we'll start seeing new patients once this is all said and, you know, said and done. Yeah. I've, I feel like I've noticed that um, scalp scrubs have become really popular. I don't know if you've seen lots of these like kind of discussions mm-hmm. about scalp. As a dermatologist, do you think that these products are really necessary? A scalp scrub is almost like a facial scrub, like the physical exfoliants. Mm-hmm. I think if you have underlying issues like psoriasis, really bad dandruff, active acne, even like folliculitis on your scalp, 
you just want to be a little bit careful because you can definitely make the inflammation worse. So even though like it might, you know, fulfill an itch, an OCD tendency of feeling like I'm going to scrub it and it's going to feel smooth, it might actually make things worse as a result. So I think approach with caution. I also think with scalp scrubs, people can be overdoing it and causing a lot of hair breakage. So I would just be a little careful. However, I think there is a place for them, especially in quarantine, in the sense that if people are getting lazy and like just using a lot of dry shampoo, um, that stuff accumulates and builds up. And so I think scalp scrubs like once a week to kind of really, you know, if you have a healthy scalp in general, isn't a bad idea if you're doing it not so vigorously to help kind of, you know, debulk your scalp of all of that stuff, you know, whether it's dry shampoo or products or whatever you're doing to your scalp in this time or not in this time. There also seems to be this kind of surge in like brands and products that are encouraging people to treat the rest of their skin like they would treat their face, like with the same diligence. I'm thinking about Necessaire um, and all of their like body care products. What's your take on this? Do you think it's kind of marketing buzz or is it something that's like long overdue? The US, I feel... American culture, at least, has been behind the curve compared to other cultures when it comes to skincare. So for like Mm -hmm. a long time, Americans would just care about makeup, not really caring about fixing the foundation of their skin, unlike Europeans or like, you know, you know, like Asian cultures. So I think now Americans are understanding that I need to take care of my skin. And so it started with the face. And I feel like it's slowly expanding into the neck and chest area. But I think the next frontier is probably going to be body. Now, is it going to be to the same extent that people treat their face, neck and chest? I don't think so. I think if it reaches that, then I think that's going to be more marketing, more than anything and kind of unnecessary. I think with body, it should really be targeted towards problems that people have that make them feel insecure, you know, that they're trying to help themselves in a way you know, not so much for the world to see like their faces on display, but for themselves to feel, you know, better about themselves and to help themselves, you know, overcome insecurities. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you think about kind of like, I feel like I've seen more AHAs or BHAs in body care products like lotions. Do you Mm -hmm. think that's something that's worth looking into? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, Um, you know, like why not, you know, it's always a good idea to kind of exfoliate lightly to kind of make sure that you're allowing your skin to like renew itself better, to boost collagen. And if it's, you know, stable enough to last on a shelf in those type of quantities, then, you know, definitely worth like playing around with a little bit. But the body's a little different than the face in the sense that your skin is thicker. So you don't need as much. You don't need as much of like, it doesn't have to be so delicate as it is with skincare for the face, neck and chest, you know? Yeah, so. no, it makes sense. And I'm so curious for your answer to this next question because I don't know, I, I feel like I know all of the products you use so intimately and some of them are clean or quote unquote mm-hmm. clean beauty and some of them are not. So what's your perspective on clean beauty, specifically clean skincare? Do you think that it's a good thing? Do you think that it's, again, overdone like marketing hype? Oh, <laughs> I know the dreaded I, clean skincare. The question. clean skincare question. Listen, clean skincare. I think started from a very good place. I think it was as well intentioned as it could be. The po- I want to start with the positives. I think it number one made consumers much more aware 
and pushed consumers to become more educated and to empower themselves with, you know, that knowledge of trying to understand what different ingredients do. Another positive is that it's challenged the beauty industry to step it up, you know, and be more transparent and be more innovative in that, mm-hmm. you know, in their, in their product development. I think the issues I have with clean beauty as, you know, where it stands today is that it almost adopts this holier than thou stance that if you're not clean, you're bad. Everything about you is toxic and bad, that you're dirty, that whatever you stand for as a product or as a, as a brand is not as good as us. And that mm-hmm. bothers me. I, I also am bothered in the fact that there are so many unsubstantiated claims that they make, like parabens being bad, you know, like, I don't know where they got that or that they um, create a lot of anxiety in a time and in a world where we honestly don't need it. You know, like if you use this, you're going to get breast cancer. And if you use this, well, how, how do they know that that's directly linked to it? Number one, I mean, living in New York City, I say this all the time. I'm like, inhaling the smog that's coming out of that <laughs> corner on 28th and Park is probably more carcinogenic than having, you know, less than 5% parabens in a product or I mean, a propylene glycol in a product. I think it's like they take like a little snippet of some kind of study that might not have been like the most well-performed study. And then they amplify it to a degree where it's just fear mongering and playing on people's anxieties and just trying to get people to buy into this concept and notion that if you use us, you'll be safe. But what Mm -hmm. does that mean? Like that, that bothers me to no end. And the fact that there's no standard definition for what clean beauty stands for is also extremely, um, right. You know, it's not regulated at all. Yeah. It's, anyone can call themselves clean. Yeah. You know, I, I could take a shower and say I'm clean, or I could take a shower and use soap and say I'm clean, but like, <laughs> it's completely unregulated. <laughs> what right. does that mean? You know? So right. I just think, um, there's, it's, it's so blurry. I agree that I can't take it as seriously as you know, as it was, you know, as it started out as, you know, when it started out, I was like, oh, this is interesting. But now it's like it's taken a life of its own that's completely like unicorns. And um, yeah. just I can't take it as seriously as like I would have wanted to. Totally. And I feel like there are some products I, you use CeraVe products, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like CeraVe products are great. And like, they're not necessarily like this wholesome blend of oils, but like, Mm-mm. I think that they're great and effective for skin and, you know, trusted. So I try to just keep perspective in a balance. Like I love an all natural facial oil. I love turning the back of my products and being able to pronounce everything that's in it. But I also mm-hmm. don't let that dictate my entire skincare philosophy. I mean, I think that, I think that applies to life, you know, being an mm-hmm. extremist in any sense is never a right. good thing, whether right. it's like your skincare routine or I'm going to hit like a religion as an extremist or like, I just think any extremist in anything is going to take a toll on your mental, on your mental psyche. And I think the key to anything is a balance, you know, and I try to do that with my skincare routine, whether I incorporate some clean, some clean brands, but I also incorporate brands that are are not quote unquote clean at all. As long as it's effective, you know, and in, you know, moderate dosages, then I'm for it, you know? Yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue to your top three favorite products at the moment that you just love. What are your oh, like top three products? I'm you're so at bad at these questions. Like top three, top four. Okay. Um, Maybe what are you using lately? 
what am I using lately? So again, I'm in quarantine and we are in a, you know, makeshift home at the moment. So I had to take like a couple of essentials kind of situation. With that, I love the glycolic acid 10% from L'Oreal, their okay. intensive line. I've been using that a lot because it just comes on so nicely. And my skin, I wake up in the morning feeling so much smoother and plumper than I do if I don't use it. And how do you use it? Like kind of what step is it in your skincare routine? So I wash my face at night, you know, usually in normal times with a cleanser and a makeup remover, since I'm not wearing makeup, I don't really use the makeup remover step. I just kind of use the cleanser. And after I cleanse, I exfoliate using the glycolic acid. So that's sort of, it's like that first step before I do everything else. So I've been using that. I have recently discovered the Aven, the Hydrance Intense Serum. Oh, such a nice product. So beautiful. Like it's so simple and elegant and it delivers. And it's just a really nice hydrating serum. So I really like that one. And then I was recently in Paris in January and I bought myself the A313 retinol and I use that at night because it's a th- it's a, it's an ointment based retinol. Um, oh, nice. So I don't, I don't, I, I wake up so soft. I put it on my face, neck and chest and I wake up honestly with like, it feels like baby skin and I could definitely tell when I use it versus when I don't. So I can try to do get that it in France. You can get it in France. Apparently uh, there's a website that I keep talking about and it's crashed now multiple times, which I think is so funny. And I don't think they even know that I'm the one directing traffic to their website Somebody sent me a DM of them responding, being like, some person on Instagram is talking about us and we can't keep up. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. A question I ask all of my guests, your three, the three biggest beauty mistakes you've made in your life and how you've learned from them. I would say not wearing sunscreen when I was younger because my, my sisters are tanned. My oldest sister almost looks Indian. And growing up being Lebanese, they're always like, you need some color, you need some color, you know? And so... I would always try to, you know, burn so I could at least develop some kind of color a couple of days later. So I think that was the biggest mistake of my life. And my parents, like, I'm just like, oh, you know, <laughs> they're like, why don't you have more color? You know, which is kind of like, I blame it on them. Um, so I think it's sunscreen. I would say sleeping, falling asleep with makeup. I've oh, been guilty yeah. to do this. I, you know, if I said I still don't do it occasionally, every once in a while, I'd be lying. Um, but I, you definitely see the difference in your skin the next day huge if you don't difference. take huge difference, right? Yeah. Like it's just like parched and dry and it looks stained and it just looks like terrible. So I think when I sleep with makeup, I really, I, I could definitely, you know, that that's been a big one. No bad haircuts, no regrettable. Oh uh, my God. Looks. Oh my God. I was like 15. And um, what's her name? Who's that blonde actress who's really cute? Petite. Meg Ryan, Meg, Meg Ryan, Ryan. Oh. had <laughs> her boy cut, her boy haircut. <laughs> and I was like, that looks cool. And so I literally went and chopped it off and came home. And my mom was like, I don't care because hair grows back. But she was very cool about it. And it looked really good, maybe the first like two weeks or a week right. and a half. And then it started growing. And I still don't really know how to style hair. And I looked like a pumpkin head. For like, at least like it was the worst growing out I've ever experienced. I would definitely say that, you know, Meg Ryan haircut from the, from the nineties 
was probably the worst thing I've ever done. Oh my gosh. Well, okay. I'm glad you're human. Everyone has like a bad story in their life. It's terrible. When I look back at those pictures, I was like, what was I thinking? Yeah. And you are a mom of two. So I know that when you're pregnant, your approach to skincare kind of changes, right? Like you can't use retinols anymore. You can't use Mm -hmm. salicylic acid. What are all of the things that kind of change about your approach to skincare when you're pregnant? Oh my God. I remember feeling like even as a dermatologist, it's crazy how much is available over the counter that you shouldn't really use. Mm -hmm. And I bet you so many people don't even know. So that was like kind of eye-opening because I never had to think about it before, right? I tried to become more efficient in less steps. And for me, especially with a second baby, it was a lot of pigmentary issues. Like how can I really try to like hone in my routine so it targets this thing and it targets this thing really well. So that's, that's sort of how my skincare routine evolved when I was pregnant. Are there any specific lines that are just like across the board safe for pregnant women that you recommend? Not really. It just, I think it's really ingredient based. Yeah. You really have to be careful and like, just look at every ingredient. Yeah. Like, you know, at least the big ones that have no, that are known to have some kind of potential or unknown risk, whether or not you're pregnant, you know, like, Mm-hmm. retinoids in general are not recommended. And there are various brands that have retinoids or retinoids, you know, in them. And so I'd say like really understanding what you're using and why, and if it's safe in pregnancy. I'm not saying like you, st- every single ingredient, like propylene glycol and like all this stuff. I'm talking about like the main active ingredients. Yeah. Did your skin change when you were pregnant? I, I mean, my nurse was like, you look like the crypt keeper with all of those like sunspots that are like, popping up. It was so bad towards the seventh, eighth month. There's all these women who are like, I felt like a goddess when I was pregnant. I did not feel that way. I thought I felt more comfortable in my skin and that I would wear whatever I wanted because my belly's sticking out. So I really didn't care what I was wearing. And I was kind of more adventurous in a fashion sense, but I didn't feel like that beauty and glow of having a baby. Like I didn't have that, you know, you did um, You did do your Into the Gloss shoot pregnant though, right? And you looked so gorgeous in that. You're so sweet. I was so pregnant. I think that was like a week before I was due. And I remember feeling very self-conscious, but at the same time being like, F it. You know, <laughs> but, but I'm like, I'm just going to embrace this for whatever it is because it's such an amazing opportunity. And I'm so honored that they want to do this, that I wasn't going to be like, I can't do this until after I have a baby. So I just tried, like, it is what it is. And, right. But thank you. It was hard. Like, I remember being in front of the camera being like, do I look like, you know, do I look like a marshmallow blob? <laughs> you know, I, 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 I didn't. Thank you. I appreciate that. But it was, it's not really how I felt 100 percent. I'm being honest. No, I appreciate that honesty. <laughs> OK, this is my final question for you. I ask every single guest who's ever been on Naked Beauty and you're actually episode 120. So I've I've heard this perspective from a lot of women, but when do you oh my feel God. most beautiful? Oh my God. What are your top three answers from 120 oh. different women? I have literally heard it all. Some people are like, oh my gosh, this is probably so weird. But like, I have heard such a range. I'm so curious. You have to tell me, when do I feel my most beautiful? I can give you like a beautiful answer and I can give you a very real answer. I feel my most beautiful right now when I've done my nighttime skincare routine and I've used that retinol and I wake up with like this supple skin, super soft. And I just feel like, great, I'm ready to tackle my day. But I don't know. When do I feel my most beautiful? I feel my most beautiful when I feel confident. Mm. When I feel confident, like 
of where I am in life and confident in myself and just like happy, like, you know, like grateful for like my kids, grateful for my, my patients, grateful for just like being healthy. And that's honestly, I'm not trying to bullshit you, but that's the truth in the sense that I feel more, I feel my most beautiful when I feel content and confident. No, that's an amazing answer. And it makes so much sense how we feel inside. I feel like really dictates how we feel. It's so true. Like even when like I have patients who are models and the ones who come in happy really shine. And the ones who come in and are not like, are kind of like a shell of a person, they're not so quote unquote beautiful, even though they're like objectively beautiful, like they they don't glow. And I feel like when you're really just secure with yourself and just like, and able to admit like, listen, I'm secure with myself and there are things that I want to work on and I'm okay. Like, let's say having a little bit of filler to make it a little bit better and whatever. I think you really glow as a person when you're secure with yourself, acknowledging what you might need to work on, acknowledging that you're not perfect, but you're just happy and you're able to like grow in a state of mind that you're able to grow. I feel like that's when you're you're most beautiful. Oh, that's so perfect. Like what an incredible note to end on. I love that perspective uh, so much. Um, thank you. No, wait, I'm curious. Wait, talking to you. Oh, you want to hear what, what, what the most? Yeah. Like, what do you think is the most, like, what's the top answer? So a lot of people feel like it's in the morning. Like a lot of people have a time of day. Like they feel like in the morning when they first wake up, that's like a lot of people feel most beautiful then. Um, for a mm-hmm. lot of people, it has to do with cleanliness. Like after I've showered, after I've like, you know, I'm fresh out, like water is a big theme. People, so people will say when I'm like by the ocean or um, when I'm like swimming, um, when I'm out of a bath, when I'm out of the shower, a lot of people connect it to sex. Like during sex, I feel the most beautiful because I'm uninhibited uh-huh. and I'm my true uh-huh. self. Uh-huh. A lot For a lot of people, it's like their skincare routine, like after they've really like done the full thing, they've put, you know, oil all over their body. They feel like they've really like nurtured their self. And then for a lot of people, it has to do with just like who they're around when I'm around family, when I'm around, you know, my boyfriend, my husband, when I'm um, around people that make me feel good. It's funny. I, I guess I hit two of them. I said like skincare routine, doing it well yeah. and waking up just with supple skin. But the sex one is kind of related to feeling your most confident because if you're uninhibited and you're just your true self in that moment, if you're able to carry that through life and just be not like totally, obviously, you know, like not like sexually, but like to be able to carry your true self through life constantly every day, it's hard. It's, it's a constant work. But I think if you're if you do that, then that confidence comes through. A hundred percent. Yeah. So real. And all the people that we think are like the most beautiful, like when you think about like a Rihanna, like it's like she just has this attitude of like, I love who I am and I'm not trying to be anything else. And like you kind of feel that. Yeah, it's it's not like it's um, it's funny because society puts this thing on people where they're like, you have to be a little bit shy about looking a certain way right? If you look, Mm -hmm. if you are very beautiful, but it's not like being a bitch. I look so good. And like, uh, (laughs) F you, it's like, I don't really care what you think. And I'm going to keep working on myself. And she's made a ton of mistakes in her youth, you know, that she acknowledges, but she's really grown. And you could really see that in her as a person, even though you don't know her. Yeah. So true. I don't know. But anyway, this was so much fun, Brooke. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Thank you so, so much for being on. All right. That was Dr. Shireen Idris. Wasn't she just great? I have so many takeaways from this episode. She shared so much knowledge, but my takeaway number one is about aging and what are the main things that contribute to our skin aging. And the five things that she calls out are lines, volume loss, color of your skin, elasticity, and your bone structure. Now, 
pigmentation issues were one of the first things that she said starts to creep up as you get older. And pigmentation issues is a really big thing that she treats. So she said this, the very first step to treating pigmentation issues is having a good sunscreen. Now, I personally, I love Super Goop. I think they make great sunscreens. Elta MD is another clear sunscreen that I know a lot of women of color like. And there's another great sunscreen, Black Girl Sunscreen, which is really good. It has avocado oil in it, so it's super moisturizing. But no matter what type of skin you have, no matter what your skin color is, we all need to be wearing sunscreen. And even if you're inside, I know a lot of us are like inside working right now. If you're by a window or if you have direct sunlight that's coming indoors, you still need to wear sunscreen. She also talked about brightening agents to help with pigmentation. Agents like papaya, kojic acid, niacin, or vitamin C. And then the topic of hydroquinone came up, which I want to address with you guys because I've been prescribed a 5% hydroquinone by my dermatologist, and it's very, very effective. You use it sparingly. It's not something you use every night in perpetuity. But when I've had um, an acne scar or a dark mark on my face, using this hydroquinone has worked to significantly lighten the skin in that area and help me get a more even complexion. Takeaway number two, when looking for vitamin C, to look for vitamin C that's combined with vitamin E or ferulic acid. That has been proven by science to be the most effective combination of vitamin C. So you want to make sure that you're finding a vitamin C with that combination. Okay, takeaway number three, and it's not really a takeaway, but I think just an interesting thing for us to keep in mind. She wasn't for or against hyaluronic acid, but she just really cautioned that hyaluronic acid may not be the hydrating cure-all that you've all been hoping for. It really does need moisturizer to lock everything in. And I think her skepticism really just goes to show that these ingredients that get really overhyped and talked about all the time, you really have to do your own research. So I am still going to be using my hyaluronic acid in my skincare routine, but I don't use it every single night and I always layer with a moisturizer. Takeaway number four. So shout out to all of my estheticians. I love you all. But one thing that Dr. Shreen and I agreed on is that we don't think you should rely on facials to have good skin. And I'm really emphasizing the term rely here. You don't need, again, emphasis on need to get frequent facials in order to have good skin. Now, if you've got it like that, you've got unlimited budget and time, like go for it. If I could afford to, yeah, maybe I would get a facial every single week. That would be fabulous. And when I do get facials, I enjoy them. I just can't imagine it being a part of my regular skincare maintenance for me personally. Okay. Takeaway number five. Now I love this one. I hope you, I hope you guys got as excited when she said this as I did. She doesn't believe in magnifying mirrors. If you can't see it at a distance in a regular mirror, it's not worth your time and effort. Amen to this. This is such a huge one because you know, those magnifying mirrors, we all know them where you can see like eight times, you know, you can, you can zoom in at eight X and see every single pore on your face and it makes you obsess. It really can cause you to obsess. Magnifying mirrors can lead you down a path of trying to achieve perfection that doesn't actually exist. So I love that she cautions her patients against magnifying mirrors and just isn't really here for them. Okay, takeaway number six. This gets into the clean beauty topic that came up. So 
a lot of dermatologists just aren't obsessed with clean skincare. Now, you guys know I like clean beauty, especially clean skincare whenever possible. But what she said about breathing in New York smog and dirty air pollution and then being super militant about using the purest form of skincare, I mean, that's real. I think sometimes we can get a little bit too crazed about certain things and you just kind of like lose touch with reality. Now, of course, if you have options and you can get clean skincare whenever possible, I do believe you should do that. But some of the claims about chemicals in skincare are unsubstantiated. Now, parabens. I feel like we all think they're bad. And so I've done some research and I have learned that this actually has not been concretely concluded. All scientists know is that they could be harmful. So parabens could be harmful. The study that they did didn't prove that parabens can cause cancer, but identified that parabens were able to penetrate the skin and remain with the tissue and cause a buildup of estrogen. Now, too much estrogen can trigger an increase in breast cell division and growth of tumors, which is why paraben use has been linked to breast cancer and reproductive issues. Now, that's obviously very scary. But parabens in skincare have not ever been conclusively linked to breast cancer. So I can understand why a lot of dermatologists and scientists are very wary of these claims that parabens cause cancer when it has not been scientifically proven. At the end of the day, it's very much a personal decision. I mentioned one of the skincare brands that I really like is CeraVe, and I believe they have parabens in their formulation. I still continue to use it, but I think it kind of even goes back to a few episodes ago when I talked about the fact that I'm not like a raw vegan, like I eat cheese, I eat cake. You know, not every single thing that I do is optimized for maximum health, and I'm okay with that give and take. And takeaway number seven and the final takeaway that I got from this conversation is just that that inner glow, that inner beauty has a lot to do with your happiness and that energy and that when you're like confident in who you are, that just really radiates in your face. It was interesting to hear Dr. Shireen talk about it because she treats supermodels and she sees all types of women in her practice, but she kind of talked about the women that really love themselves having this glow. And I've observed that in my own life. When I really fixate on a person, like, you know, sometimes you'll even, you'll like be at a cafe or someplace public back when we used to go outside and you'll get fixed on someone and you'll think, wow, like they're just gorgeous. And it's usually because they're radiating some sort of positive energy or a vibe. It's not just down to like the structure of their face, right? Beauty is so much more than that. And I do think that your skin glows and your eyes sparkle and you just show up in a different way when you're truly happy and at peace with yourself. So I love that final bit of wisdom from her. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. Thank you guys so much. I'm going to be doing another solo episode soon. So don't be shy. DM me at Naked Beauty Planet. That's the community for this podcast. And give me ideas on solo episode topics you want me to tackle. So far, we have talked about at-home beauty treatments you can make. I've done an episode all about food and how that's linked to the health of your skin. But I'm eager to tackle more topics. I love doing research. So if you guys have any ideas or thoughts, please don't be shy. DM me and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'll talk with you soon. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 